How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my friend, Raja Deer. Raja is the co-founder and co-CEO of Seed Health, a microbial sciences company pioneering applications of bacteria to impact human and environmental health. He's an expert on the microbiome and is able to speak eloquently on a number of topics related to gut health. In this episode, we discuss the gut microbiome and its impact on the whole body. What does gut health really mean? And what is the microbiome? How to optimize the health of your body through the gut. We also discuss how to harness the gut to improve cardiovascular health with a certain type of commonly available supplement more typically used for constipation. Everyone is obsessed with microbiome testing. We're going to definitively answer the question, does the science currently support consumer-level microbiome tests? And of course, how diet impacts the gut. We cover sugar and sugar alternatives, different types of dietary fibers, and meat and fat. There is so much that we discuss over the course of this next hour and 15 minutes that you are definitely going to want to have a pencil and paper ready uh, to take notes. I also just want to mention briefly that um, at around the 13-minute mark to the 20-minute mark, there was some raking going on outside of my apartment window. So for that brief period of time, you're going to hear some background noise. I sincerely apologize for that. Um, There's just, there was nothing that we could do about it, Uh, but it only lasts about three to four minutes. So if you can bear with it, I promise you that the rest of the episode is worth um, getting through that. Before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. Four Sigmatic makes it all possible. They make a line of medicinal mushroom infused elixirs and coffees and hot chocolates. And when I'm on the road, I will often bring with me a packet or two of their lion's mane infused coffee, which I will use for a quick pick me up. I really like that unlike the larger coffee chains, their coffees are organic and they come infused with lion's mane mushrooms for a little bit of added focus and clarity. Now, if you want to check out anything that Four Sigmatic has to offer, all you got to do is go over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of everything in their online store. That's the biggest discount you're going to find for Four Sigmatic anywhere. And like I mentioned, they make some very tasty uh, reishi-infused hot chocolate mixes that are good for chilling out. They have some um, lion's mane elixirs that don't have the coffee in it if you are a coffee abstainer. So again, head over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and uh, peruse their wares. You won't be disappointed. All right, guys. Now we're just seconds away from diving into this chat with Raja D on all things gut health and microbiome. I promise you this is going to be one of your favorite episodes of the show to date. He is such an eloquent man and he has such a great ability to uh, distill the latest science into um, vernacular that is, you know, it can be a bit technical, but bear with it because he also offers a lot of very actionable tips as well. Please take a moment to support The Genius Life by leaving that rating and review on iTunes like this one from Mimi in the Sea. She wrote, it's very clear that Max spends a lot of energy and time extensively researching his topics before talking or writing about them. He brings on guests who are highly knowledgeable and skilled in their practice. I've learned so much from this podcast and I've shared it with so many friends. Well, Mimi in the Sea, I am so happy that you are picking up what I'm putting down and this episode surely uh, will not disappoint. It is packed with with knowledge and I cannot wait for you to listen to it. And to everybody else, 
Again, that rating and review really helps the show rise up the ranks. I would very much appreciate it. The other way that you can support The Genius Life is by joining my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. Just by leaving your first and last name and email address, I am going to send you my 11 supplement guide to uh, the tools that you can potentially use to boost your brain function, along with my number one sleep hack that I use for more rejuvenating sleep. Every week or so, I send out a newsletter packed with information designed to improve your life in at least one way, and you can opt out at any time. So again, not to belabor the point, but go to maxlugavir.com, join my newsletter, and um, I would very much appreciate that. That helps to support the genius life. And now I cannot wait to get into this chat with uh, the amazing Raja Deer. So without further ado, on with the show. Raja, thank you so much for being here, man. It's a lot of fun. Thanks this for having me. Long time in the making, I feel like. We've been jamming out on nutrition and nutrition-based science for a couple of years now. Yeah, we met. Where was the first place that we met? I, was it like Revitalize? Or? No, the first place we met was in a coffee shop in uh, yes. Los Angeles <laughs> with my co-founder. And you're right. wearing a shirt that said carbs. Yes, <laughs> I remember that. Your co-founder, Ara. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool, man. Well, I'm excited to get you on here because you're like a wealth of knowledge. And um, I haven't really done a dive into all things microbiome. So uh, you're like my go-to guy uh, for microbiome science. So I'm Looking excited to, uh, to get into it. Looking forward to it. You're my go-to guy for uh, nutrition. So I'm sure we'll find a lot of common ground. Dope. I'm excited. So I guess let's start. Like, Why don't you tell my audience a little bit about you, your background, and how you came to be so... Um, I mean, I guess you could say enamored with this topic, right? Yep. So I started, the first paper I ever read on the microbiome was in 2006. And it was a pretty provocative paper. It's when the microbiome of an obese mouse and lean mouse were knocked out and transplanted. Uh, the entire phenotype or body shape of the animal was reversed. Wow. And I always joke, you know, if you want someone to pay attention, find a way to make them skinnier and all of a sudden it becomes propelled into the hottest field in science. And I really tracked the field from there. I was an undergrad at the time. I was a biology major. Um, the human microbiome project started shortly after that. And then uh, the field as a whole started looking at other microbiomes. So bacteria on your skin, bacteria in your mouth. Uh, for women, the vaginal microbiome, it's, it's something that we, we researched very extensively at our company too. And uh, my first company was building up to uh, the gut microbiome or microbiome research, but it took a little bit of a different approach. It was looking at compounds that you could isolate from plant biomass uh, and you could actually standardize them and then reintroduce them back into the human body. And so my first patent that I authored in 2011 was on a compound from algae, which increases both the alpha and beta diversity of the gut microbiome uh, in a very short period of time. It's an algae-derived um, N3 fatty acid, which we should definitely talk about the difference of um, fats, different the role different fats play in the microbiome at some point today. Mm. Um, and kind of the, I think the special sauce of, you know, what I've, what I've been so fortunate and blessed to be surrounded is always had the top scientists in the field, usually a phone call away. And so our thesis and my uh, journey into the microbiome has always been around this idea of partnering with leading academic institutions building upon the research of top scientists and usually leaders in their field and then centralizing the way to get those faster into the market or into the clinic if it's going after a, a, a drug designation. And I think it's really important because you think about, you know, pharmaceutical agents as these things that where nutrition has often failed. And I think that at, we often look at those as an area of last resort. But the framework of validating something the way that a pharmaceutical 
compound has to be done, but doing it with like bacteria, for example, or through modulating the microbiome is an area that's incredibly interesting. And, and just to give you an example, now we're finding that the microbiome is, it's, yes, it's helpful for things like weight loss where, where I started in the field. Um, but just, you know, a short, short period of time in terms of science R&D cycles, we're finding that it can determine whether you respond to cancer therapy or not. So um, it touches everything to say the least. And I, I really think that the next couple of years are, we're just at that inflection point. And so that was really my basis. And I've been fortunate to be part of that rise of the field and, and be kind of on the uh, heels of the leading scientists, at least for, for the last four or five years now. That's amazing. Let's take a quick detour to like microbiome 101 for like any, I mean, my, I have a, I'm just going to warn you, I have a very savvy audience. You know, if you're listening to the Genius Live, you are, you are a genius essentially. But <laughs> for anybody who's listening that maybe has not yet caught wind of the microbiome, maybe they hadn't yet, you know, picked up Genius Foods and read, you know, the chapter that I labored on for six months on the, on the, on the art and science of the microbiome. What, it, what is the microbiome? So the microbiome is the community of organisms that live in and on the human body technically it's all of their associated genes but now it's associated it just means the you can just think it's like the fungi the bacteria the viruses um you'll see people try to create distinctions and keep inventing new things like the virome and the microbiome but it's all part of the microbiome and it's all that interplay between these resident microorganisms and in and on the body is a very uh, important distinction because when we talk about the microbiome, most people think that we're referring to the gut microbiome, but that's the gut microbiome. There's also these communities everywhere. And it's crazy to think that, you know, for example, just last year, there's a publication that says there may be bacteria in the brain in people that have a neurodegenerative disease or in healthy individuals. We're replicating that work and we're partnering with the NIH and we haven't found any bacteria there yet. Hmm. Um, but that, that idea is, is really uh, provocative. So that's the microbiome. And again, the role that it's, we're finding out that, you know, you get it. Um, your first exposure to bacteria is called seeding. And it happens during passage through the vaginal canal. Or if you're born through cesarean section, you get it from skin to skin contact with the mom. Um, those organisms are then fed through building blocks. Uh, the, the only <laughs> carbs I think everyone can get behind in breast milk, um, which cultivate that developing community in around six months it stabilizes hmm. um wave one around the age of two is when it achieves what's called steady state and then that's for the most part the microbiome that you're going to have in times of health for the rest of your life it'll change based on your diet it'll change based on your lifestyle but that's your baseline um you know the best idea to to I think in the future we'll start collecting infant microbiomes around the age of two and keeping them as a reservoir. And you could always inoculate yourself or repopulate yourself with that starting community later in life. I think that's a really interesting idea I've heard some people talk about. So anyways, that's the microbiome. That's what it is. That's how you get it. Um, and, you know, it's important for just day-to-day -day digestion is how most people are aware of it. Um, but your metabolism, your immune system whether you have allergies or not, whether you have airway sensitivities, whether you have increased risk of infection, uh, whether you have an increased risk of neurodegenerative disease, whether you have increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and these are and, and even some forms of cancer um, are, are what we know today. And uh, every month or so, it seems that link of associations are, or that list of associations continues to grow. That's amazing. I like the idea that um, 
you can take the term plasticity, which, you know, I think most people are familiar with in terms of its, you know, application for the brain, but that we have this like degree of plasticity, you know, for our microbiomes. And it's, I guess, most plastic around, you know, up until the age of one, but it's not, it's still not static. I mean, we have a, 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 a dramatic ability, I think, to modulate it, you know, via our diets, our yeah. lifestyles. It's a highly dynamic community. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's strange. No one really has a perfectly stable microbiome because, I mean, some people take antibiotics, but other people, there's antimicrobials in your oregano, for example, right? So on a day-to-day basis, you, you will continue to find these things with microbiome modulating properties. Sometimes they're bacteria static, which means it doesn't let bacteria grow. Other times they kill everything off and then you let the strong ones repopulate and come back. And in some ways, that's how intermittent fasting works is it smokes everything out and the strong bacteria. And, and even I think that's how ketogenic diet in some ways works is when you deprive your community of, of these building blocks for a short period of time, you go back to this baseline because all of the, the organisms that have been added or stacked on top then kind of diminish in their diversity or their numbers. Um, and then your, your original crew is the one that is, has the highest selection advantage, so to speak. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it, it is very dynamic. Um, but what's interesting to know about the gut microbiome is that, and why I have such an issue with these diagnostic tests, which say, well, just give us a swab of your toilet paper and we'll tell you whether you have a quote, I'm doing air quotes, good microbiome or not. The truth of the matter is there is not really one good microbiome. It depends on where you grew up, what your genetics are, what your upbringing is, what your lifestyle is. And you can't just blanketly say that like a more diverse microbiome is a, is a, is a better microbiome. And I'll give you an example. So the most diverse microbiome that anyone's known are the hunter-gatherer tribes that are found in the Hadza. Hmm. But there's not any amount of money you could give me to take a Hadzan microbiome because I've looked at the sequences and I know what's in there. So when you look at this community, you'll find it's the most diverse community on earth. Um, but very few of those organisms would have any protective benefit for our lifestyle, right? They're, and some of them are quite frankly disgusting <laughs> pathogens. Um, and so I think it's an oversimplification to say that just a more diverse microbiome is blanketly a better one. And I also think that we have as researchers, or certainly I know in the scientific community, a fascination with these um, primitive type of microbiomes. And in many ways, it is a healthier microbiome because that diversity is a sign of resilience. It's the hallmark of an ecosystem. But I think that there's some features or some strains or some bacteria that we have access to today that you know, are, are more adaptive living in built environments, for example, than, than you'd find living in a, in a complex uh, uh, equatorial rainforest, for example. Hmm. We started talking about uh, these microbiome tests. Yep. So I feel like, yeah, I get questions about them all the time. Yeah. I see them advertised all the time. So look, if you're curious about the, res- the bacteria at a taxonomic level, which just means what they are, what their name is, how they're classified, how they evolved away from other organisms, then absolutely do it. And I've done it several times, but I have two or three main criticisms with using this information um, and takeaways from it to, to inform your diet necessarily. So the first is that if you really want to get a sense of what's going on in your gut, you shouldn't take a toilet paper swab. You should actually use whole stool. And that's because the anaerobes, so the bacteria that hate oxygen the most, they concentrate in the middle vertically and horizontally of like a stool sample. Hmm. So when you ju- you get a good sampling from these at-home kits and these sampling protocols of your rectal microbiome, 
um, or what's on the outside of stool, but there's a underrepresentation of these core organisms, right, that you found find on the inside. So that'd be the first recommendation. The second is that I've seen people pull out all kinds of recommendations literally from their asshole in the in these tests that quite frankly don't have any any backing or basis in in science or nutrition science and so I'll give you an example so one of these tests they tell you oh uh, you have a low abundance of X bacteria and those bacteria are important to uh, convert glucosinolates that are found in cruciferous vegetables into more bioactive compounds that are beneficial for your health somehow positioning that that person should minimize or would not benefit as much from intake of cruciferous vegetables. And I think that that flies in the face of every everything we know about nutrition policy, right? So just because you might not have a bacteria which is perfectly adapt or over-enriched, as we would say, in performing some specific function doesn't mean that the substrate or the, the food is somehow no longer healthy for you. It just means that maybe you're, un, you're unoptimized for glucosinolate conversion, as an example. I mean, it could also, it could also imply that you, are, you don't consume very many cruciferous vegetables and therefore you're not selecting for that bacteria by you, feeding them. Yeah, you just hit on it, which is we've, and, and we've shown in studies now that when you indu- put repeated exposure to a specific food, you then enrich for organisms that are primed for that type of conversion. So uh, one thing that we study a lot at our company is uh, polyphenols come, that come from pomegranate. And we know that bacteria in the gut, they convert these into this potent class of metabolism regulators and um, mitochondria, mitophagy-inducing compounds called these urolithins. And if you don't eat enough pomegranate or if you don't eat enough, they're found in these elagic-tannic-rich foods. So walnut, a little bit of strawberries, and then uh, pomegranate, right? Hmm. If you don't eat a lot of them, uh, then you just don't enrich for those organisms. And so it's that feedback loop that you picked up on, which is that just also could be a comment about your diet rather than something which is good or not good for you. So that's one example. Another one of these microbiome tests recently said that, well, based off of this large data set that we generated, you would actually tolerate a piece of uh, a donut better than you would a banana. Hmm. And again, it's this overly reductive isolationist approach to nutrition, which says, yeah, sure, maybe you might have less of an insul- like a insulin response or less of a you know circulating glucose levels because of some microbiome associated study but i don't think that's you can go as far enough to say as you know a piece of a donut's going to ever be healthier for you than than a piece of fruit and 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 it's it's when these takeaways that i have a lot of criticisms about the limitations of the actionable utility of these tests today now in other ecosystems in your body if i took a skin swab or if you gave me a a sample of your gingival plaque Hmm. um or if you're a woman and you give a vaginal swab, you can get tremendous amount of actionable insights based off that data. So I'll give you an example. The chief scientist of our women's health division who's led the human microbiome project for vaginal microbiome research for 15 plus years, two weeks ago, he just published a hallmark paper showing that actually specific type of vaginal microbiome protects against sexually transmitted infections than another. And we we know how it works now. And so we can now pretty fairly say if you're vaginal microbiome is dominated by delactate producing bacteria like lactobacillus gasseri and lactobacillus crispatus, you have more protection against chlamydia than if you had another type. And we just don't have that type of insights for the gut microbiome today. And I don't think we, we will outside of just a very few small kind of limited party tricks. So again, this field is incredibly complex. And what I'm interested in in gut microbiome are the people that are saying 
this is the gut microbiome that prevents infants from getting allergies. Or this is the gut microbiome that makes your immunotherapy more effective if you have cancer. And that's the real science. And I think that we pervert that science when we cheapen it so much that just you know, an at-home diagnostic kit somehow conflates itself as um, you know, actionable. And I think that that data is really limited. So actually, I'm on an NIH grant um, investigating all these diagnostic tests for reproducibility, validity, and uh, regulatory compliance. And so uh, that grant kicks off in January. And we're probably going to publish something about this subject in the next, you know, six to 12 months. Wow. So that's diagnostics for you. Yeah, man, the wild, it's like the wild, wild west, pretty much. Well, the last thing I'll say on it is, is, and the not so nice version is selling people future promises to bankroll your sophistication of your data. I mean, it's uh, in finance, you go to jail for that. You know, so I, I think that were these diagnostic companies to be nonprofit and say, look, send us your sample and we'll tell you where your bacteria evolved and kept it at that, I think it'd be great. But that's not something that's venture backed. Um, that's not something that has a business model. And so I always am very skeptical when the commercialization particularly an emerging field is so far ahead of the science, particularly for something like the gut microbiome, where we know there's these functional redundancies and 10 people can have 10 different microbiomes and all be healthy, right? So you have to really exercise caution, I think. And the field needs to exercise caution and consumers need to ask tough questions like, um, where, what was, what was the publication that this data set was based off of, mm. you know, or wh why would, to your point, why are you telling me that I have the microbiome of an obese person when you're like in the top 1% of like athletic forms? I mean, that's, <laughs> it's... Yeah, we were to offline, me and, and Raja were talking about the fact that I, I actually did one of these microbiome tests and uh, my results came back. It said that I had the microbiome of an obese person, pretty much. I had, I forget the ratio of Firmicutes to Bacteroidetes, but... Yeah, they said that it was... Uh, and the irony is probably that you intermittent <laughs> fast more than most. <laughs> well, I do that. I mean, I eat a lot of vegetables, yeah. you know, and I'm fit. Yep. I, I exercise. Exercise can independently benefit the microbiome. Yep. Would you say that the microbiome is sort of like a fingerprint? Like, is there anybody on earth who could be expected to have a, sh a microbiome that's shared with another human? I think so. I mean... You think? I think that we find most healthy infants usually have a very similar microbiome. Uh later in life. And, and again, it depends. It's all about which vantage point you're looking at. Mm. So if you're just looking at it at the Bacteroidetes and Firmicutes level, for example, then yeah, a lot of people have similar microbiomes. But what does that mean, right? If, you look, if you're looking at the exact difference that down at the species or at the strain level, then it's all going to be unique, but they all might perform very similar functions. And so it doesn't matter whether the bacteria that's processing my elagic acid is a Gordonobacter, or whether for you it's a Bifidobacterium, it's still getting the job done. Yeah. So function, the one takeaway I would have for people here is function is far more important than the identity of organisms when it comes to gut microbiome. And the short answer, the, 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 the truthful answer is that the only way to look at function is to look at metabolites. And that costs about $1,000 a sample today. And also about 80% of the metabolites in our gut, we still don't know what they are. So yeah, that's, that's why that hasn't been done yet. Wow. Fascinating. So let's talk about 
you know, a little bit about the th- kinds of things that people should should or shouldn't be doing in terms of fostering whatever the healthiest microbiome may be for them. Um, I think before we started rolling, we were talking a little bit about artificial sweeteners. I'm fascinated by artificial sweeteners. Uh, two big studies came out in the last two years on the role that artificial sweeteners play in the gut microbiome. The first was showing that it had bacteria, what's called bacteriostatic effects. So they're non-nutritive and non-absorbed, uh, which means that they pass straight through and go straight into the majority of your gut microbiome. And here they blunt the growth of beneficial members of your resident ecosystem. Hmm. And so in some ways, it's almost better because glucose, your body just deals with it, right? It deposits it, it put, wraps it up and transport, transports it and stores it or uses it up. But these sweeteners, everything that doesn't get absorbed ultimately passes through your gut microbiome. And so that's the first part. The second was a phenomenally designed experiment that got a lot of press where they actually used a fluorescent bacteria that goes and lights up um, every single time it comes in, in contact with the toxic byproduct that's being produced. And so they set, they programmed it using synthetic biology to respond to certain toxins. And they found that in a gut microbial ecosystem, when exposed to six different artificial sweeteners, you were producing these toxic byproducts that gut bacteria were making as a byproduct of trying to break this thing down. And so I think that's really interesting because it's, again, these are long-term effects that it might not, you, you might not catch it on a glucose tolerance test, for example. It might increase temporarily your um, glucose response. But in the long term, I think it has it has these these residual effects. And so two interesting studies here that some of them are, one of them has got microbiome mediated, but the other one's a fascinating study um, on artificial sweeteners where they actually use like a Pavlovian type of response. And they took these mice and they gave them these artificial sweeteners and they found that when you gave it to them orally, the body expected there to be some sort, it it prepared itself in some way for a glucose response and to get ready for an energy utilization. But then when it wasn't there, you ended up wearing down those pathways. Basically, that predictive response started to get weaker and weaker. And so it made your body in the long run less tolerant or less equipped to handle a true glucose challenge. Hmm. So to me, that's really interesting because that means if you stay off of glucose altogether, maybe it'll be fine. But if you use it, then the the effect of exposing yourself to glucose is actually worse. They found these rats ended up being um, more obese, had higher glucose levels on the same glucose challenge after the fact, instead of becoming more tolerant or more uh, equipped at handling glucose, which to me is, is, is really interesting. And the other thing they did in this trial that was, I think, quite elegant design is they then took the same artificial sweeteners and they gavaged it. So they gave it straight into the stomach of the, of the animal and it bypassed their sensory system in the mouth and it didn't have that same effect. So it was only this kind of predictive pattern, right? Where you put in the mouth, um, the body starts to prepare and expects there to be some sort of glucose that it needs to be equipped to handle and then there's nothing there. And so over time that begins to weaken. So I think that's probably, um, again, it's still an animal study and so the conversion, whether that persists in humans remains to be seen. But I think that, you know, certainly the gut microbiome effect for artificial sweeteners is, is really known. Yeah. I mean, are you, what types of artificial sweeteners are you generally more, most cautious with? And then like, do you personally consume foods that are made with them? Sucralose, um, aspartame, uh, most of the 
non-nutritive sweeteners or NNSs are used are the things that you'd find most in like processed food products or in diet sodas, for example. No one's done it on the stevias and the monk fruits and the erythritols. And I think that erythritol, for instance, is known as gut tolerant. Um, And so I think it's probably more tolerable. Um, But that research hasn't been done. So we don't know the long-term effects of it. Super interesting. Um, yeah, there's this big, you know, it's, it's definitely a, uh, hot button debate, artificial sweeteners. I feel that I, I, I often see a lot of people from the fitness community that are coming to the defense of artificial sweeteners, um, saying that they're no big deal, you know, like that it's the, the dose that they often use in these mouse studies is massive, um, and the like, but I, I always think that it's better to, uh, Use you know reserve a little bit of caution for these kinds of industrial chemicals. I would say the toxicity risk is a, is a little bit low, but then the question becomes, what are you? It's all relative, right? So of course, drinking an artificial sweetener-based beverage is better than consuming a hundred grams of liquid sugar per day. I think that everyone would get behind it, but I think that some people in the fitness community oftentimes use these straw man arguments where they take it, compare it to an extreme case when in reality, if abstinence or if uh, avoidance were an option, I think that the rel- the decision-making in that situation is a lot different. Yeah, 100%. So what are some other, what are some foods that might actually benefit the microbiome? So this is a really interesting one. The Human Microbiome Project Part 2 came out last year with um, the largest recommendations on the role that diet plays in uh, based on over 11,000 different uh, people, 7,000 different metagenomes. So extremely comprehensive and they found that the number one predictor of a diverse uh, and resilient gut microbiome was the consumption of over 30 different uh, fruits and vegetables in any given week Hmm. and so the takeaway there is that for people that might just stick to their core like five or ten foods that you know still are would be considered healthy but that don't venture out that far uh, I think there's an argument for for diversity diversity of diet is good for diversity of gut so over 30, over 30 types, not over 30 servings. Types. Wow, very interesting. And so switch it up. That would be my recommendation. And what further supports that recommendation is that the second best predictor of a unhealthy microbiome was the consumption of less than 10. Hmm. And so we, we the, probably the best thing you can do, and again, I think that there's a lot of time people get too wrapped up in the macronutrient debate. They say, well, X percent needs to be fat or X percent should be carbohydrates or X percent keep your protein below this or don't let your X percent of your protein be animal versus plant. And, you know, at a certain point, I think that if you if 70 to 80 percent of your intake are vegetables and low sugar fruits, you can eat whatever the fuck you want. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate that. Um what about, so, you know, we were talking a little bit before about, you mentioned there are compounds in oregano that act as antimicrobials. Um, talk a little bit about, about those kinds of foods that have those properties, because, you know, for example, I know that alliums are one of the, uh, you know, top um, most beneficial categories of foods, which include, you know, garlic and onions in terms of, uh, you know, microbiome pro- prolifer- proliferating those beneficial bacteria. But doesn't garlic also contain like compounds like allicin, which acts as a powerful antimicrobial? Um, so yeah, how does that, I mean, how do we reconcile that? So there's two parts. And in some ways, you, I, I look at this literature the same way that I would look at evaluating an antibiotic. Because, in, I mean, you can put 
uh, oregano oil on a plate of a mixed community of your gut microbiome and you can see a big ring appear where it's just killed everything off mm. so it's true i mean I, I and it busts that myth that just because something is natural therefore means that it's better these are all the reason that food can work like medicinally is because it has very potent quantities and it needs to be regulated and treated as such and so you know i'm i'm hesitant to but when people tell me they're just drinking bottles of oregano oil because they're trying to reset uh, naturally reset their gut microbiome i just it, the amount of information i'd have to give that person so they can understand the information that i want to give them would be so much yeah <laughs> why are uh, people doing that for like SIBO? yeah well you hear i mean at this point you hear like and people just do it because it's it trends oh, yeah you know clean reset your gut like it's <laughs> you you hear these things that don't oftentimes have a lot of a lot of scientific basis Merit, yeah um but you bring up a, a, a good point with the allisons and the allium family, which is you can still have a positive effect on the gut microbiome or on a micro microbial community despite killing off bacteria. And there's a number of reasons for it. So first, depending on which bacteria you kill off, you can open up real estate for new bacteria to grow into. The second is that actually bacteria can cross feed off of the cell wall of other bacteria. So actually by killing off some bacteria, other members of the community use it's, I mean, it's, it's, dog eat dog or, yeah. or cell eat cell in this case and they'll use that as a as a substrate or a basis to grow themselves and i think that was one of the most provocative findings of the last couple of years is that actually phage you can viruses can light can break down the cell wall of certain bacteria that then expose the innards to be uh consumed by other bacteria to grow off of so you can mod by be by being antimicrobial you can also increase the microbial growth of other residents too so i think the exact mechanism is um recently i saw the exact mechanism for ginger hmm. uh was revealed and in this case and how plants in particular modulate the microbiome and um it's a little too technical but some people say that they or this new research suggests that it comes because of micro rnas so it's messenger signals that are actually used by these given off by plants that modulate the function and structure and community dynamics of the gut microbiome wow so it's literally like survival of the fittest. So by, I mean, eating some of these foods, you're probably cultivating a, an even stronger ecosystem. I think so. That's amazing. But one class of foods that I will say above and beyond are extremely interesting. So there's two ways by which something can be prebiotic. And so what we're getting at is the ways that, um, you know, microbial communities can be modulated through diet or through a prebiotic in some form. And there's kind of two types. Um, there's these types of, inulins and fructooligosaccharides and um, stalks that are found in cruciferous vegetables or prebiotic fibers that are found in some like psyllium husk as an example uh, that are grow just food for bacteria and so bacteria eat it they grow in numbers their relative abundance increases that's it there's a very there's another class of prebiotics which is a little counterintuitive and so these are molecules that are so large that they actually bypass digestion altogether. So they're too big to get into systemic circulation. Hmm. So they're not absorbed by the body. And this is the area that we focus on. And an example of this are these, uh, you know, punicalogens, for an example, the something that you'll find in the skin or, hus or the outer shell area of a pomegranate plant, or um, some of these anthocyanins and the pterostyl beans that you'll find in blueberries, for example, or um, it, normally you find it in these like, tropical, slightly acidic, 
husked plants or fruits like like the pomegranate or you'll find it in these cold weather resistant nordic berries or mm. as an example they're they're completely filled with these large molecules and so your body doesn't break it down about three to five percent of those enter into your bloodstream but what that means is that they get thrown into your gut microbiome where they're just totally devoured i mean it's it's feast <laughs> mode and then they convert it into these think about it like pac-man they break it into these smaller called bioactive metabolites which then get absorbed into your system circulate systemic circulation and can have really potent effects so again the one we're most interested in is these these pomegranate polyphenols and how gut bacteria turn it into urolithin a urolithin a was so potent that it doubled the lifespan of a model elegant model system in the in the lab c elegance it's called and um it but through through mitophagy mm -hmm. so clearing out decayed mitochondria and it actually reversed sarcopenia and muscle loss in age-related uh muscle wasting that was found in in rodents in wow. animal models so this is a really really interesting uh, compound that's amazing can you give i mean pomegranate polyphenols to just anybody or do you have to first cultivate the species that are going to create urolithin a so if you already have gordonobacter or some species of bifidobacterium in your gut you're more likely to be able to metabolize these compounds immediately. But if not, you may have very small quantities of them that if you then start like, uh, it, for instance, if you go uh, three months um, with consumption of pomegranate every single day, you enrich for those communities. So you can overexpress the abundance of those organisms through changes in your diet. Wow, that's amazing. You mentioned a little bit... Um different uh, types of fiber and fiber extracts in particular are something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I know that the FDA was recently investigating whether some of these fiber extracts that are marketed, they're occasionally marketed as being prebiotic fibers. Sometimes they're not marketed as such, but they're, they're used as uh, sweeteners, like sugar-free sweeteners, chicory root fiber, tapioca fiber, and things like that. What are your thoughts on those? Do they, I mean, do they act like true fibers in the gut? Do they bypass digestion? Because I notice that if I consume too much chicory root fiber, my stomach just blows up. Yeah. I feel like humans have a pretty low tolerance for that, which, you know, get, I, that implies to me that it is a fiber. Yep. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts? So the main thing to remember with fibers is, is it fermenta fermentable or is it non-fermentive? And if it's non-fermentive, then you can go to town on it. It'll just have a bulking effect and mm. it'll usually be soluble and increase stool hydration and uh, ease of digestion and bowel movements and low risk. The fermentable fibers you have to be a little bit more careful about because if they're degraded or m too early up, uh, then that's when you get that kind of a uh, gas associated production because the fermentation site's happening too um, high up in the GI tract. You want it to happen more in a more distal location. Mm. And so they do work, uh, but again, I'm very critical. What happens is when you r pull something out of its normal food matrix, uh, particularly when it comes to fiber, then you increase the activity in a particular site where it may not have been so rich before if it were just blended into its normal uh, food process, right? So your small, small, bowel, small intestinal bacteria would uh, not be as focused or have as readily readily have as much access to that fiber if it were consumed within a normal plant matrix. Yeah, I mean, chicory. Like, how much chicory could you eat? Yeah. You'd, you'd have to eat a lot of chicory yeah. to get 10 grams of chicory root fiber, but that's like two small protein bars, And again, it's a, it's a bit of a philosophical note, but I think that 
these reductive approaches are time and time again when you can i mean for instance if you look at like vitamins when you get them from plant sources versus when you isolate multivitamins and forms of supplements like almost every study you look at it you have a really hard time reproducing the results of getting compounds from their food matrix when you pull rip them out and try to just isolate them right so if if a budget and um time uh permit the recommendation would would very strongly be to get um you know if you eat whole food sources you should have no problem getting your basic fiber and i'll give you tell you one study which for people partic- particularly that are taking fiber supplements because of constipation which i thought was extremely interesting so the idea was always that people that have a constipation or have a hard time uh passing stool how many times have they heard we'll just eat more fiber right that's the number one go to recommendation but for people that fall in that in that specific category sometimes actually having more fiber can make things worse because the issue isn't the bulking the issue is in the expulsion mm. and so it can make it worse because then you just bulk up and have much bigger stool but the still underlying problem of peristalsis and of passing and moving that that stool out persists so you just have a bigger thing that you can't get rid of now. Right. Uh and so again, I don't think these things are one size fits all, but when it comes to fiber, the recommendation is honestly extremely simple. It's focus on your diet. Um the same way that your advice oftentimes is don't count calories, don't count the number of grams of fiber you're having. Select for your diet and the fiber will fill itself in if you're making the right dietary choices. Yeah, I love that and I totally agree. I did become very interested recently in psyllium husk, which is available I think most most commonly uh in the form of metamucil. But I became interested in it particularly as a means of trapping bile acids mm. as a way of lowering cholesterol, cholesterol for people. Um I think that's it's actually a probably a very effective intervention. Yeah. Um most people don't don't realize this. They think about Metamucil purely in one context, right? Yep. Helping them better go to the bathroom. But viscous gel-forming uh, fibers like psyllium husk, if taken with a meal, like yes. if taken with a fatty meal that's going to cause the release of those bile acids yep. right from your, from your gallbladder, basically trap the bile, which is then going to cause your liver to create more bile. And how does it create bile? It sucks out the... the it, bile is made of cholesterol, which yep. it sucks out from circulation. So there is some... Um, Obviously, there is some research backing this. So, for so for listeners that don't understand this process fully, I'll give a little bit of background context. Yeah. It's called the uh, gut liver heart or gut liver access and access in some ways. And cholesterol is produced by the liver, and it's released in the form of bile salts. Um, and bile salt hydrolase is the enzyme which then works to deconjugate those bile acids, bile salts. and most cholesterol is actually reabsorbed back into systemic circulation so it's exactly what you said it's right. released um after a meal um doesn't always have to be fatty but of course fat increases the amount that's released and then it's absorbed back up in the colon or in the very ileum the end of the small intestines right before it reaches the colon which is why what you said it has to be taken with or or after um a meal to have this type of effect right but it is true and and if someone has a high risk of uh or elevated uh VLDL or LDL cholesterol and wants to rein that in then that is actually one very effective technique and the reason that I know this is because we spent years researching one specific bacteria so bacteria can also have the same effect hmm. strangely enough and uh they work by producing this that enzyme bile salt hydrolase that deconjugates turns turns those bile salts into something that the body can't reabsorb So that's a very different mechanism but gets you to the same point and we actually 
we spent years researching that strain. We filed IP on it. Um, and it's one of the strains that we contain in our uh, bacterial cocktail uh, that work along this cardiovascular um, modulating pathway. It's super, I mean, for, you know, obviously we don't give medical advice on this, on this podcast, but I mean, that would definitely be an intervention that I would try yeah. well before, you know, jumping on the statin, statin bandwagon, especially if it were in the context of primary prevention. I mean, and of course my bias against statins is well known. I, I think that turning off the body's ability to produce cholesterol and just assuming that there's not going to be downstream effects is um, irresponsible medical advice. And so, of course, if I agree with you, consult your doctor if you have high cholesterol. And in some instances, statins have dramatically reduced the risk of all-cause mortality associated with heart disease. But if there's another approach that you can have to rein that cholesterol in, like bacteria or like these bulking fibers, then we know that preventing reuptake is one viable path of doing so. Yeah. Amazing. Um, speaking of, of cholesterol, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about meat. And, um, you know, you and I have had this conversation. I think a lot of people, well, people that listen to this know that I, you know, I'm, I'm pro the consumption of properly raised meat, but there and is people that have been watching your Instagram in the past <laughs> six months know that you've turned into a carnivore. No, I've <laughs> definitely not. I've definitely not turned into a carnivore, but I'm, you know, I like to stir the pot a little bit because yeah. um, because I think that meat, you know, by avoiding meat for the, you know, when, especially if doing so under the guise of like, you know, this environmental activism or, or for health, you know, I think it, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're avoiding meat because you can't bear the thought of, you know, having a cow murdered in your name to put food on your plate, then that's a totally different argument. And I won't, and I, you know, and I, I don't go there. I just urge you to consider the fact that countless rabbits and squirrels are decapitated during the planting of, you know, wheat, corn, and soy too. So there's that. But anyway, I digress. Um, in the microbiome community, there's a lot of talk of, you know, how meat specifically affects um, the microbiome. There was this uh, a lot of eyebrows were raised a couple of years ago when um, researchers thought they had discovered a new mechanism by which red meat might contribute to heart disease. And that was via the production, the microbial production of trimethylamine N-oxide or TMAO. Um, but of course, you know, the science is never as simple as the headlines make it out to be. So what are your thoughts on all this? So a couple things. First, I think that if there are risks of meat consumption, they can be attenuated by appropriately adjusting your vegetable intake. So I think that my strongest bias is against the carnivore diet or these, again, reductive exclusionary type diets or that enrich for one macronutrient at the expense of others. I think that that's um, not supported by the evidence. I don't think that, the, I mean, the best longevity diets that we know in history uh, all include a little bit of consumption. Most of them are fish or, or light or so in red meats. But the one thing that's mostly common is that less than 20 or 30% of your intake is um, strict protein intake or high protein intake or carnitine or uh, choline, so to speak. So if you want to get even more detailed, but we'll get, we'll get back to that in a second. In terms of the, what the research says, the only two compelling Marker, and I know that this is an evolving field, so probably even by the time this comes out, there'll be something new. But the two areas of research that are risks from meat consumption that I've been compelled by are one is if you if colon cancer runs in your family, uh, there's some argument that direct exposure of undigested meat. So that, again, this means if you have it in small enough quantities where they can appropriately be digested and it's not come comes into immediate contact with 
clonic epithelial cells, resulting in this increased risk of, you know, inducing mutation. And again, quality of meat, how it was grown, sustainability, this just puts red meat. These are observational studies. These are dietary questionnaire based. Um, you know, there is mechanistic evidence to suggest that exposure to consistent intake of red meat can increase the risk of initial mutations resulting in colon cancer. But that's the only real cancer argument that I've, I've seen. And the second is I don't really know what to make of this one, um, but it's a compound, it's, a, it's based on this theory of glycans. And it says that there's something about a molecule that's found in mammals that other mammals can break down um, so in birds, it's, it's completely fine. It's only in the intake of other mammals. It's this 5-GC glycan. And it's, the argument is that humans don't know how to process this because we can't convert it into something else. So we end up assimilating it into tissue, our own tissues as we would a normal glycan. Hmm. And when that happens, the immune system can then, like there's been reports of people that, and, that have autoimmune conditions where there's an attack against, particularly in like joints, for example, where these glycans can get integrated, that when they take a step back or they eliminate all of their mammalian, mammal consumption, that they find that, that goes away. And the same 5GC glycan is found in small quantities in fish eggs and in some fish as well. It's just not found in birds. So again, this is competing and conflicting evidence. I'm presenting it because I've, been comp I've seen papers that seem to be well-written. Um, that talk about the role that that can play in terms of the immune system's detection and integration of those glycans into our own cells, into our own tissue. Other than that, I think my recommendation remains, which is there's processed meats and nitrates. There's a number of compounds that are used that are associated with the production of commercially available meats that are oftentimes more destructive. Um, I think that you can attenuate the negative impact of meats. Like if, if to go back to your TMAO point, so for people listening that don't know what TMAO is, it's this idea that choline that's mostly found in the yolks of eggs and carnitine, which is enriched in, in meats, um, is converted by gut bacteria when it reaches into your microbiome into a compound called trimethylamine. So that's TMA. TMA is then further converted into, it oxidized into TMAO, and TMAO is believed to be atherosclerotic. And so it's involved in the hardening of blood vessels. Now, I think that there's a number of things that are bigger risk factors than the, if, if controlling for everything else, I would say this is probably lower on the risk than living a sedentary lifestyle, having poor disrupted sleep, um, a, you, like inactivity or use of, a, um, you know, like, um, what would you, what would you call it? Um, like proton pump inhibitor, like these systemic or uh, stat statins even in some ways that increase your risk of myopathy. Like there's a number of these systemic processes that probably can have as many, if not more downstream effects. But look, at the end of the day, I think that TM TMAO is probably a valid risk for atherosclerosis in a perfect, in a, in a world in which you want to get rid of your risk completely. But the answer is that, is it going to be the thing that puts you over the edge? Or if you live an otherwise healthy life, would it induce heart disease or atherosclerosis in an otherwise healthy individual, there's no evidence to support that. Hmm. But what's interesting about that is that actually there's ways, and we talked about this a little bit before, of attenuating that conversion. And so there's M Emily Balska's lab at Harvard is the leading expert in um, microbial metabolism of TMAO. They're do showing a lot of interesting ways of blunting the ability to convert that. Um, if you 
eat co take foods or beverages or liquids that are enriched in this compound called DMB that's found in your red wines, in your balsamic vinegars, in your extra virgin olive oils, in trace quantities in grapeseed oil, but not, not very much, um, then you actually can block that conversion of TMA into TMAO. So maybe there's some wisdom in these Mediterranean-style diets and um, or the French paradox, as an example, with this copious red wine consumption. I'm not condoning it. I'm <laughs> just saying you fi- it's interesting when you start looking at, you know, in cultures that do live for a very long time, that do have a history of red meat consumption, or egg and choline intake, high choline intake, they usually attenuate that with other compounds that block that uh, the production of that compound. Yeah, but it just underscores the fact that humans don't eat isolated foods. Yeah. Like they might feed, take a ma- like a lab rat and feed it only red meat, you know, and therefore selecting for a microbiome that metabolizes red meat in this way and see this negative phenotype yep. emerge, you know, like a mouse with heart disease, for example. But humans don't, I mean, unless you're a carnivore, but uh, humans don't eat these isolated foods, right? We eat like dietary patterns and hopefully your dietary pattern is going to be a healthy one that incorporates, you know, extra virgin olive oil, dark leafy greens, pomegranate, um, food, you know, foods that are balsamic vinegar contains TMB. Um, And therefore, you know, negating, you know, any any negative potential risk of... Again, my thesis is that the uh, it's the and you just hit it on the head it's the absence of other nutrients which might begin that cascade resulting in pathogenesis rather than the presence of something specifically found and we find cultures all over the world that have extremely varied diets and have also histories of living long healthy um disease-free lives right so we can't say exclusively i mean there's and by the way, people in the Mediterranean, they eat meat. Yeah. Like this notion that the Mediterranean diet is somehow a meat-free, meat-free diet makes zero yeah. sense. You know, in fact, whenever I even, and, you know, obviously I know this, but if I even so much as suggest otherwise on social media, people that, that don't follow me or whatever, well, I'll always hear, you know, it from them that like, well, you know, what am I like biased and trying to portray this version of the Mediterranean diet that's like, a, you know, grain-based, low-fat, meat-free version? No. Um, Plant-based does not mean necessarily meat-free. Right. Um, again, if there is one take-home message, it's if, if you are suggesting to replace plants with meat, then I think that that's not supported by the evidence. But if meat consumption, and I've seen, I've seen the meals that you eat. I mean, they're stuffed with vegetables and cruciferous greens. And I mean, you're balancing it out with a whole array of phytonutrients and um healthy oils and and it's not artificially inflated and saturated fat i do think that there's inflating the amount of saturated fat intake um to artificially jumpstart ketogenesis is probably um unsupported unless you have epilepsy uh but again i think that it's 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 so cliche that it i even feel lame saying it but like balance if you just have a balanced diverse varied diet then for the most part you build a resilient ecosystem and as i said unless you have like a huge uh, genetic predisposition or risk for either colon cancer or for an autoimmune condition, particularly one that's related to the joints, then I think that the evidence is is fairly um, supportive of the fact that small quantities of plant-based uh, proteins and animal-based proteins at, at the end of the day are just made up of bundles of amino acids, right? And so the body treats, with the exception of these other things like glycans or too much carnitine, like what, whether you get your leucine from 
um, an egg or whether you get your leucine from a pea plant, for the most part, your body doesn't really know where that leucine came from, for example. Um, and so I think that amino acid intake is important. I think they're the most rich uh, base that you can have nutritionally. I think that an ex exceedingly low protein diet is also something which doesn't promote satiety. Um, and it's also not something which is healthy either. Um, but balance is, is where, what I would emphasize there. I think that like the jury, for the most part, outside of those core conditions, the jury is still out on, I don't think the evidence supports that a carnivore, the same way I would say doesn't support that the carnivore diet's good for you. I don't think that the evidence can impartially support that 20% of your uh, diet, come, your protein intake coming from um, properly raised animal proteins is necessarily going to have some sort of adverse event either. Yeah. You touched on fats a little bit, fats in the microbiome. Um, are all fats equal in the eyes of the... All the, fats the, are not The equal. trillion microbes that live in your large intestine? No, and we can see this very quickly when we, when we hit the microbiome or we hit um, a nutrition diet or animals, whatever it might be, with different varying quantities of, of different fats, you can see almost an immediate change or lack of change based off the input. So saturated fat as defined by 25% more of your calories being in saturated fat exclusively does have a, a, what we believe to be a dysbiotic shift in the microbiome. And so you'll find enriching of certain bacteria which do not serve any known function and crowd out more beneficial bacteria that produce these short chain fatty acids. So here's the irony. The irony is that a high saturated fat diet prevents your gut bacteria from turning carbohydrates into the type of fat that's actually good for you. Hmm. So these short chain fatty acids, these butyrates, these propionates, these acetates, these, these fatty acids that are produced by gut bacteria are actually one step removed from dietary fats or free fatty acids as you might be. But what's unique is not only the structure of them, but where they're released. So here you'll find that they're intimately produced and connected and absorbed by your epithelial cells, by the cells that lie in your intestine. And talk about a feat of coevolution. I mean, humans have entrusted these our our coevolution with these bacteria so much that we now outsource the responsibility of producing energy to those mucosal organisms that live along that lining. And how do they do it? They can't do it from turning fat into another type of fat. They do it, do it from turning these resistant starches and these complex carb complex carbohydrates and these fibers into short chain fatty acids, which have a whole range of downstream effects in human nutrition. That single-handedly, the production of these short-chain fatty acids locally on the lining of your gut wall are one of the best things that microbiome research can support to date. That's amazing. It's it's mind-blowing to me that by consuming a bowl of dark leafy greens, say you just you're eating a bowl of dark leafy greens without any any salad dressing on it, no, uh, you know, you're not adding an egg or an avocado. It's a fat-free bowl of greens. That bowl of greens is actually a high-fat meal. By the time it gets re reaches the end of your digestive tract, converted, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And of of those organisms, the one that the scientific community has been most fascinated by is butyrate. And really interesting. I mean, these ketone bodies that uh, you know, low carb people are so focused on or not even just that you see elevated when you do intermittent fasting or uh, calorie restriction. Um, it's, it's very similar in structure to these butyrate, butyric acids that are produced by gut bacteria. And every single time when you look in and you ask what, what is the most valuable function that we know these 
resident organisms can play. It's the production of these short-chain fatty acids, which affect your insulin signaling, they affect your glucose tolerance, they affect your risk of neurodegenerative disease, they affect your gut barrier lining, and in turn, your immune response to prevent things from entering into systemic circulation that shouldn't. Um, weight, they regulate your entire metabolism, right? And so we think that these fatty acids are incredible. But to go back to your question, one study, of, and even not all, so monounsaturated fatty acids are phenomenal for the gut microbiome. They're not associated with any dysbiotic shifts. And in fact, they do enrich for certain organisms that produce these short-chain fatty acids. So big two thumbs up for those. So monounsaturated fat, uh, it's the primary fat fatty acid in extra virgin olive oil, even in even higher proportion in avocado oil. Um, wild salmon, grass-fed beef, both about 50% monounsaturated fat. Uh, but generally, generally extra virgin olive oil, um, avocado oil, great sources. I mean, you're the expert on this. I'm surprised you don't bathe yourself in olive oil by this point. Well, you know that I can, I'm big on my extra virgin olive oil consumption. Um, yeah, it's the it's it's my go-to oil. Yeah. I use it. Um, it's a phenomenal oil. Yeah. Uh, and of course, read your, your post on what to look for. You don't want it to be oxidized. You don't want it to go rancid. Make sure that it's, um, you know, somewhat fresh and don't expose it to high heat and all that good stuff. Um, but another thing that's really interesting here is that even within polyunsaturated fats, there's a completely different gut microbiota response on whether it's, and I think the study I'm referencing compared soybean oil as an example to N3, which is also polyunsaturated fatty acid, but it's an N3 fatty acid instead of an N6. And that just has to go with where the binding site is. Mm -hmm. um, but one completely decimated the gut microbiome. High content of soybean oil had an inverse relationship to alpha diversity, whereas uh, omega-3s, they they're extremely well tolerated. Wow. They don't have that same effect. And we know that and in some, and some iterations of this have argued that they've gone to reverse uh, microbiota-related inflammatory response. And so, yeah, it's, I think the recommendations aren't different than what people already know, but maybe people didn't know that they did have such an effect on the gut microbiome. Yeah. Saturated fat, isolated saturated fats, um, such as butter, maybe some hard cheeses that are you know, unusually high in saturated, you know, because most natural, all natural fat containing foods have saturated fat in them. So saturated, fat are, saturated fats are not bad. But I think what's interesting about dairy is that it's the only place where you're going to see a higher proportion of saturated fat yeah. than any other type of fat. Um, it, would you say it's, it's still true? Does the research continue to support that saturated fats encourage this translocation of uh, like endotoxin, you know, these bacterial toxic inflammatory byproducts across the gut wall or is that not necessarily true in the real world in a meal with you know mixed nutrients above 25 percent intake and so when you find it in like it's it's why these uh fast food convenience burgers are such a gut bomb right because they induce this lipopolysaccharide induced or endotoxemia in some instances it's called um microbial translocation and just so for people that aren't familiar with this the way that this works is that in your gut there's beneficial organisms, but then the cell wall of these gram-negative organisms are made of something called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And so what this does is um, actually in, in the lab, we actually use that to induce the inflammatory response. So when we want to test how, how, to, how to induce inflammation, LPS is the goat, is like the positive control. Hmm. That's what we use to induce it. 
And um, the thesis is that some some compounds, but there's a number of them. There's extra extra elevated levels of saturated fat. There's high in, high uh, intensity interval training actually temporarily opens up your tight junctions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's alcohol, alcohol ethanol. Uh, there's NC- stress, stress, uh, sleep deprivation. These non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or these NSAIDs, artificial sweeteners, um, and so. And again, just to, to talk about how we can also rescue that, which is which we'll get to in a second. We can attenuate that induced um, stress, and it's something that we've spent a lot of time researching. And, and I'll finish this bit by telling you of an alcohol study that we're designing right now. But to go back to your question, above 25% intake, saturated fat does have a carrier effect where if it's opened up or if you have particularly um, permeable intestinal membranes, uh, then you find a translocation is is amplified but only above 25 percent got it so very high intake of saturated fats so basically if you're just eating like butter and cheese and you know fatty red meat but like also also grain-fed red meat too which has a higher proportion of saturated fat so grass-fed beef probably no no issue yeah so context is key context is absolutely key yeah i've also read uh, a study i forget where and when it was published but that omega-3s can help uh mitigate that that translocation omega-3s are phenomenal they increase the alpha, the diversity and richness and evenness of your gut microbiome they down regulate the inflammatory response and they have a restorative effect on tight junction proteins hmm. so i'm the biggest i'm the number one advocate of um of n3 fatty acids and sometimes i take a book right out of the uh, max playbook and i just eat out of those sardines and EVOO. <laughs> I just put them in my bag and I eat them at the airport and people think I'm a freak and my <laughs> fingers smell like fish. For the whole day. For the whole day. <laughs> that is definitely a page out of the Max Lugavere playbook. But now I feed my dogs. Um, each of them gets a can, if not two, of sardines or wild-caught anchovies that are soaked in extra virgin olive oil and they eat grass-fed ground beef and their coat and fur and sheen is like they get compliments all the time. That's amazing. I have a cat, and I her, her name is Delilah. In case you guys are interested in, to know, and she, uh, I try to feed her sardines, but she doesn't. She doesn't like them as much as canned tuna. Hmm. So I'm trying to get her more on the omega three rich fish side of things. But she's got a picky palate. On the story of gut permeability, one thing I think is so, and and maybe we can use this to segue talk about brain, the brain a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I have the, I'm I'm working on this unified theory that when barriers break down, whether it's vasculature for your for your nerves or or veins, I should say, um, or whether it's your epithelial cells in your gut, um, or whether it's even the blood-brain barrier, I think that this is the beginning of a cascade that results in a whole form of degeneration. And so, I intellectually and our company uh, scientifically is very focused on how we can attenuate or have a rescue effect on this type of barrier disintegrity. And so I'll give you an example. A lot of people think that, oh, well, probiotics are maybe they work, maybe they don't, or my digestion's fine, or why should I take it, or if I eat a balanced diet. But most people don't know that specific bacteria, they actually signal to these tight junction proteins to stitch them up. And so this is something that you don't get just by having them in your microbiome. This is something that's unique to the oral consumption of these bacteria, specific bacteria that cause or induce this type of tight junction protein 
expression, hmm. right? Or this bar- this reversal of barrier disintegrity. And I think that's a really fascinating point where like we don't think about bacteria as being vehicles of repairing um, tissue membrane, right? But it's uh, something that we, and, and again, all almost all of our work is done in academic partnership and in our partnership with the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School, we designed this this test where we took a different cell lines, different combinations, different cocktails of bacteria, and we found a, a cocktail that works specifically on that membrane, on those cell types. So that's not to say that it's it's irreversible. There are ways that you can, and another example that has nothing to do with us, but glutamine. Glutamine has been validated time and time again of having this type of a barrier disintegrity reversal effect, right? So people that are uh, a little bit more sensitive or that want to take extra care of their gut can enrich for glutamine as an example. So there's a number of tools in our toolkit. Um, but when it comes to, to, to barrier disintegrity, there's actually this theory. So for people that are interested in, and I know that your audience probably really enjoys brain research and um, on the one hand, it's cognition. On the other hand, it's how, you, how can you stave off these diseases of degeneration, right, that happen with age. And for the longest time, so if you look at neurodegenerative disease, the leading thesis has been um, at a certain age based off of a genetic predisposition and a combination of lifestyle, you end up producing these amyloid plaques. Hmm. And these amyloid plaques, they go and they tangle up neurons and produce these tau tangles, and that causes progressive degeneration of your brain and loss of function. This has been the whole storyline for since 1985. Right. But it's uh, there's two parts that make the story a lot more interesting. So the first is that the production of amyloid plaques, if it were so destructive, why would you see it in organisms all the way back from worms that's conserved throughout the entire complex evolution of mammalian evolution? So that that's just not how evolution works. Things that are destructive usually get weeded out or they lose they, they lose their function or they lose their role or they no longer become relevant, right? And even in some instances, when you look at like diseases or afflictions that we do have, like cancer, the pathways for cancer or for constant cell replication are when we're young, things that are beneficial for us. But when we get mutations and they're older, they no longer help us. It's called, I think, uh, pleiotropic antagonism or pleiotropy or something like that. So why would these amyloid plaques still exist? Why would we still have that function? Why would we find it in all animals conserved from simple worms all the way up to complex mammals? And the one of the thesis, and for people that are interested in this, I encourage reading the works by a Harvard neurologist of the name of Robert Moore. Hmm. And in the, in the early 2000s, he came up with this new theory where he said, um, the blood-brain barrier starts to become permeable. And so it lets in other compounds whether they're bacterial, whether they're viral. Uh, we don't know exactly what, whether they're metabolites, what those triggers are. But then this amyloid is protective. It's a form of a primitive brain immune system where it moves to trap and block these compounds and in doing so produces a lot of collateral damage. And so that's a very interesting way of thinking about this. And, and that's, it's the reason why all of our Alzheimer's drugs that just look at turning off amyloid, the amyloid system, for example, have not actually really worked because it's so instinctive, it's so hardwired that it's really hard to do so without causing a lot more downstream effects. And so there's a, a tech company out of San Francisco that's going into a phase three trial right now that has a really interesting hypothesis. They say that oral bacteria in your mouth, P. gingivalis, their cell wall and their metabolites, they cross and enter the blood-brain barrier in people that 
you can start them 10 years earlier, 15 years, 20 years earlier if you know you have a risk of neurodegenerative disease and you can actually block them from entering and crossing the blood-brain barrier and you see a complete change and shift in the way that these amyloid plaques even form to begin with. Hmm. And so to me, this, is this, this idea that there's a microbial theory for neurodegeneration that's built on when these barriers start to lose their function is if you ask me what the most provocative research I think that in the last five years or so that I've come across, I'd have to say it's this. And I think that, and again, you heard it here first, in five years and 10 years, we're going to find that there's more of a role that when these barriers start to break down, things that should not be entering into systemic circulation do, and then normal immune processes that serve us when we're healthy start to break us down when we're not. Yeah, I mean, that it totally makes sense to me. I, um, you know, that the breakdown of the, uh, blood-brain barrier seems to be a very early um, preceding event that um, predates amyloid buildup, tau pathology, cognitive dysfunction. Um, super interesting. And also, I know that Rudy Tanzi, I wasn't familiar with the other researcher that you mentioned, but Rudy Tanzi over at Harvard is doing a lot of this research. They're collaborators. Like, oh, are they? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I feel like that's a major... You know, it's not, it's, I mean, it changed, like, it's it's a whole new way of looking at this. Yeah, well, but it's also not that dissimilar from the way we're now starting. The more the more progressive among us are starting to look at cholesterol. Like, if cholesterol were really this like evil thing, why would our bodies? Why would it be on the other hand so important to our bodies? Without cholesterol, you would die, right? It's horm It's a horm I mean, it's used in hormone production. It's, yeah. It's there's no good. This is the one thing that bothers me so much. There's no good cholesterol. Or bad cholesterol there's just cholesterol right it's just a molecule and it can be good or bad depending on the carrier that deposits it in, pl in places that it shouldn't be deposited or if it's reined in and deposited where it needs to go then it's an absolutely necessary molecule for life yeah 100 percent. so i feel like i feel like the amyloid story is very similar that's what it seems to me and, that, and they've you know that's one of the reasons that all, the, all these Alzheimer's drug trials that are looking to remove amyloid from the brain, I mean, there's a, they have a 99.6% fail rate. Yeah. So we definitely have been looking in the wrong place, um, I think. And uh, I'm excited to see where the, you know, this type of research um, and And goes. even if it's not exclusively through changing the microbiome or through changing the barrier, it opens up, I think, in the future, we're not going to see these black and white things where drugs are going to get replaced by bacteria. Although I, I will say, I mean, there are some areas that we're investing in where I think that that is the case. But what we're going to find is that there's microbial components to the treatment and prevention of disease that when we consider them will amplify the efficacy of existing therapies. Hmm. We were almost out of time, but uh, I just wanted to briefly ask you. So, I mean, one of the, one of the um, food-borne proteins that is usually associated with increased permeability of these tight junctions is gluten. What are your thoughts on gluten as it pertains to um, gut epithelial integrity, you know, the gut, the gut lining, and then also, I don't know, the brain. I mean, zonulin is expressed at the blood-brain barrier as well, which is that protein that basically acts to control the drawbridge on your gut um, epithelial cells. I can't answer it at the brain level, um, but I think for people that are, there's a very distinct signature or a shift uh, in people that can tolerate versus not are intolerant of the gluten and gliadin family mm -hmm. altogether. And so I know that, for instance, like, um, 
you know, again, to go back to Mediterranean diets, or in this case, the real group, the group that's leading the charge that's in the pro hard breads camp is actually the Scandics. So like uh, in Copenhagen published a huge study, University of Copenhagen published a huge study saying that gluten um, and gliadin increased the diversity of the gut microbiome and, and posited that as a, as a favorable outcome. Um, the godfather of, uh, of celiac and gluten intolerance is um, a scientist at Harvard by the name of Alessio Fasano. He's on our scientific advisory board and he has um, very, very strong opinions on, on how for some individuals, it's not just that gluten is good or bad, it's that there's been su there's such a disruption or it, they're so close to the edge already that something like this becomes opportunistic or it tips it over, whereas you can, you know, in other people, they might be able to tolerate it more because they haven't gotten to a point where some, they're so sensitive or so responsive to something yeah. that may be seen as foreign. And so I think that the research is, I've certainly seen research that gluten and gliadin work in um, a temporary increase in tight junction protein uh, disruptions. Um, but at the same time, I've seen the, the Danish people put out study time and time again that shows that they're completely tolerant. And so I think this is one of those cases. The reason why it's so polarized is because I think people really can cluster and split in terms of having a varied response to the same compound. Yeah, I think it's also a question of dose with gluten and the fact that, yeah, it's a context-dependent context response where, you know, we've just, our guts have become so disheveled, you know, due to whether it's like, I don't know, antibiotics, lack of dietary fiber, lack of diversity, lack too many omega-6s, too many omega-3s, too much saturated fat, as we talked about, you know, over the course of this, of this podcast. But for somebody who is doing seemingly everything right and who isn't celiac and who isn't, um, you know, markedly sensitive to the gluten protein or gliadin, that maybe it's a question of dose. Maybe they could have a little bit here and there. But the other issue, I think, is that the our, the the food supply has become so saturated in gluten, right? And bread in the U.S., wheat in the U.S. is actually yeah. bread to contain more gluten. Yep. Um, because we, we value so much that texture. So we're just getting more and more and more of this protein than ever before on a background of like total gut dysbiosis. Well, so. I, I mean, I'm not a big bread fan for because I just think it's low in in micronutrient and nutritive value. Same. So it's, it's, it's for me, like gluten is an interesting secondary character. Yeah. Um, I know sourdough is, has lower gluten con concentration because of the way it's produced. So for some people that are sensitive, I think they can tolerate sourdough much better than other breads. Um, but again, I think if you, if you, if it makes you feel bad, then just cut it out. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Exactly. Well, we're just about out of time. I got one more question for you. Um, but before we get to that, Raja, how can people like connect with you if they have follow-up questions? Um, you've got a beautiful Instagram, so people should go and check you out over there. Yeah. Well. So my, my Instagram is just pure, basic, nerdy science. I just post these images from um, under the microscope and deep in space and deep underwater and try to make connections between um, science in all its different forms so if you have any questions for me you can reach me at wild raja and if you have any questions on the microbiome or probiotics or um vaginal microbiome or women's health we've we're up to a lot of cool stuff over at seed uh just at seed on instagram or on twitter um and you can go learn as much as you'd like over there and and drop us a line beautiful 
Um, well, dude, this has been a real pleasure. The last question that gets asked to everybody on the show is, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? Wow, that's a good one. Um, I think that we have, as a society, we have an obsession with um, oh, extracting or oversimplifying things to get to these little nuggets. And we treat wisdom as this elusive, hard-to-find um, you know, journey uh, that entails a lot of desperation and a lot of failure. And I think that a genius life is a, is, is a lot more intuitive and a lot more seamless and a lot uh, more frictionless than, than I think that you might make it out to be. And it's, it's my opinions on nutri nutrition science. I think it's, in some ways it's over-engineered and over-complicated. Um, it's the same way that I think in even science, uh, we look for patterns in tea leaves that don't necessarily exist. And then we try to build, construct a story that best serves what it is that we're looking for. And so I would say that that's a, a long wind up to saying that the principles of true science, which is observe, hypo hypothesize, observe, uh, analyze, reflect, um, without having an attachment to outcome, um, is the best process that you can have in, in living your day-to-day -day life. And I think that if you live by those principles, then um, it's a good North Star to get to, to be steered by. Beautiful. Amen. I couldn't agree more. Well, dude, thank you so much for this. This was enlightening. And uh, to all you guys out there in podcast land, please take a moment to share this episode of the show. Highlight your favorite quote from Raja or I. Share the genius life and everything that we're up to over here. And I will catch you on the next episode. Peace. Hey guys, it's me again. I just want to let you know that uh, if you valued Raja's insights and want to check out his company, Seed, all you got to do is go to seed.com um, and use promo code MAX for 20% off of the first month of Seed Pro and Prebiotics. Um, Raja obviously knows his stuff, as I'm sure you can tell, and his company, Seed, is uh, super groundbreaking in the microbiome space. So again, all you got to do is go to seed.com and use promo code MAX, and you'll get 20% off of your first month. They've been gracious enough to allow me to offer that to you guys. All right, seed.com, MAX, 20% off. Peace.